0: Christians don't always get it right either. And in Corinth was a place where they were not living out the Christian life in a very accurate way. Uh, And Paul, the, the reason this letter is so helpful is you've got people who have been Christians for a couple of years at least. I mean, Paul was there in Corinth in around 51 AD. And then he left came back, and uh, he is in Ephesus at the writing of this in about 53 A.D., and so he's writing a letter back to Corinth to address a number of issues that they're having, and so what we get to look at is we get to look at some questions they've asked him and him correcting some things that are going wrong in Corinth. So this is a group of believers. Some of them were Jews and came to believe in Christ. Some of them were Gentiles, pagans, all different kinds of nationalities. You have slaves, you have free people, you have highborn. you have lowborn. you have very influential people in this church. And you have people that have very little influence in this church, all the power structure, all the socioeconomic classes are mixed together in Corinth. And of course their cultural background made a big deal out of those socioeconomic and power structures. For example, in the Roman world, and this will come into play over the next several lessons, one of the things that was big there was the idea of a patronage system. And this was a Roman way of, uh, of doing life in general. In other words, you would have someone who was uh, powerful, say they were a business owner or they were prominent in the community or, and they were had more money and they employed several people or they in addition they maybe also had a lot of slaves and they held a political office or something in something in that society that they were powerful they would have patrons meaning they would have other families that say worked for them they would have families that owed them a favor in other words and so there would be a network of people who were tied to this person. And you were expected to vote the way they voted. You were expected to support them. It's almost like being an employee of a company in some sense, only more so in the sense that you're expected to be loyal. You're expected to be supportive of your employer. Well, this was even more so. And so this patronage system was big deal. And so you get people in the church who are now brothers and sisters in Christ, and there is no respect of people with God. God doesn't recognize socioeconomic, ethnic, racial, slave, free. God doesn't recognize those things, but you get into it. And when you walk in the church, that goes away. And it's not so easy, is it? When Monday through Friday, you, the person you're sitting next to was your boss, or the person you're sitting next to was someone richer, more powerful, etc. So that dynamic of their culture is gonna come into play in their Christianity a little bit. So we'll see that as we, uh, as we go along as well. So here are some of the things that they were having difficulty with. This is sort of a list of topics. We talked in our last lesson on chapters three and four about unity, about splitting and preachers and leaders. In this lesson in chapter five, we're gonna talk about sexual immorality which was a big issue because the sexual morals of the culture were very different than the sexual morals of the church. That, to me, this is probably one of the more relevant topics. I mean, they're all relevant to us. This is directly transferable because we live in a time where the morality in the church is radically at odds with the morality in our culture. It was exactly the same way in Corinth. Some of the examples are gonna change over time, but basically it's exactly the same situation. We'll see lawsuits, the idea of freedom, uh, marriage and divorce, idols, conduct of women, the role of women in the church versus the role of women in the culture, communion, spiritual gifts, uh, all kinds of things that they're wrestling with. So today we wanna talk about chapter five and the idea of sexual immorality. So let's jump in it is actually reported, this is the Apostle Paul writing, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind of sexual immorality that doesn't even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Okay, so what do you really think about this, Paul? I mean, this is just jump right in. You know, it's like, hey, I hear that this is going on in your church. And I'm gonna tell you right now, my mind is made up and here's what you need to do. Well, that's shocking. There are actually several shocking things in this. So first of all, what is the problem? There are actually two problems here that Paul is going to address, two specific problems. The first one, let's look at, and the first problem is... uh, the sin that is going on itself so there is some kind of sexual immorality happening and it's worse than even the pagans would think it was wrong and what it is is a man has his father's wife now this is not incest per se what's happening here is uh, son is with stepmom and the idea we don't know if that The the word there is not clear. It's clear that they are cohabiting. It is clear that he is with his stepmom. It's not clear if they're married and really doesn't matter for the topic at hand. Now, I realize that in our culture, people would look at that and they'd go, oh, that's not that bad. Way worse stuff. And you probably would say, there are way worse stuff going on here. But in that culture, that was... A very bad. In some ways, I know this is going to sound crazy because Corinth was known for depravity. It was known for sexual immorality. I mean, it was famous. Greek poets and writers at the time would reference Corinth as kind of the bottom of the sexual morality scale. They might be more conservative than our culture, which is kind of hard to believe, isn't it? So this is happening, and that's the first problem, is you have an instance of sin of sin of a kind that shocks not just the church, it shocks the pagans. So let me go forward just a little bit with this and uh, give you a couple of examples. So those who were Jewish first and those who knew about the Jews, which almost everybody knew about the Jews and their morality, in the Old Testament, Leviticus, and I put Leviticus and Deuteronomy here, do not have sexual relationships with your father's wife. Now, again, this is not talking about your mother. This is not incestuous. That would dishonor your father. A man is not to marry his father's wife. He must not dishonor his father's bed. So very strict rules in the law of Moses. And so when you think about what is sexually immoral, by the way, that's, this is worth a brief, brief detour. When the Bible talks about, the New Testament talks about sexual immorality, what is it actually talking about? Well, you read it as a 21st century person, you could just say, oh, sexual immorality. To me, in the 21st century, that means, and then fill in the blank. That's not what it meant then. When Jesus tells people to uh, avoid sexual immorality, when Jesus talks about immoral things, what is he talking about? Prostitution, for example, is legal in many places in the world and some places in the United States. Is that sexually immoral? Not to everybody it isn't. So how do you define what's sexually immoral is? Do you get to make it up? Do you get to decide for yourself? No. I mean, the Bible would be useless. In fact, any document would be useless if it's, well, on your cell phone contract, why don't you decide what's fair? Now, the world doesn't work that way, does it? There is such a thing as truth. There is such a thing as a standard. Well, when the New Testament talks about sexual immorality, it's talking about largely the sexual morality that God has already set down 1,400 years before the coming of Jesus. When Jesus looks at a situation and says that's sexual immorality, what's he talking about? He's talking about the morality that God has decreed the sexual morality that God has decreed. And so this would be, this event would be sexually immoral. But it wasn't just sexually immoral to the Jews or to religious people. There are several uh, documents from the time. I'm just going to show you one. And it's a little hard to follow, but I want you to understand what Paul is saying here is exactly true. Several examples of this. But this is Cicero. Cicero is really well known. You see the dates that he lived. He died you know, not long before Jesus was born. This gives you a really good idea of the sexual morality in the Roman world. Cicero was a lawyer. He was an orator. And so this is from one of his cases. He's making an argument in front of the judge about a client. And he's talking about the situation. And this is a little hard to follow, but I want you to see how strongly he talks about the idea of stepmother and stepson cohabiting with each other. Watch this, this is just amazing. Sassia, this is the stepmom, being charmed in a most impious way with love for the young man, Melinus, her son-in-law. So this is exactly what's happening in court. by the way. What he's talking about is you got stepmom in love with the son-in-law. At first restrained her desires as she could, but she could not do that long. Presently she began to get so furious in her insane passion, she began to be so hurried away by her lust that neither modesty nor chastity nor piety piety means fear of the gods, nor disgrace to her family. In other words, this was disgraceful in their culture. We're not talking about Christians here, nor the opinion of men, the indignation of her son, the grief or daughter. Nothing could keep her from her desire. So she seduced the young man, because he was not yet matured in wisdom and reason. And uh, along with those temptations that at an early age can be charmed and allured, her daughter, who was married to the son-in-law, was tormented. Uh, but she was unable. She did not think she could even complain to anyone without committing a sin herself. In other words, this was so shameful she didn't even want to tell anybody this was going on. So when Paul says this is something even the pagans think is is sexually immoral. I mean, that's like as low as you can go. But in that culture, he's absolutely right. In that culture, this sin was considered very, very immoral. And this is at a time when prostitution is considered a holy thing to do. Temple prostitution was good, but this was awful. Now, I'm not trying to say to you that there's an equivalency here and that that's one of the worst things they could think of. It may not be one of the worst things our culture can think of. Just substitute here one of the worst things that our culture can think of, right? And so that's what's happening. Paul is exactly right, and the evidence of the time really supports what he's saying. He said, so the biggest problem that they have is you have sin happening here, and not only that, everybody thinks this is sin. Everybody's looking at the church and saying, whoa, that's really bad. Even we think that's bad. You know. So what about the Christians? What, what's going on over there? So that's the first problem. But there's another problem. And the second problem is, uh, and this is where you and I kind of need to pay attention, is so the man has his father's wife. So that's sexual immor- immorality. But you aren't doing anything. In other words, you Are fine now why would they be fine with this I want to talk to you about this because you're gonna see this unfold as the letter goes on but I'm gonna go ahead and skip forward and tell you why they're fine with this you see they thought that since God loves them and since they have been forgiven of their sins that they had been freed from a burden of guilt and shame that's true the New Testament says your burden of guilt is is gone so they became the most tolerant loving people you could ever imagine and that's exactly what's happening and that's exactly uh, what paul is saying you are so puffed up with your newfound forgiveness and freedom and the love of christ for you you tolerate stuff even the pagans don't tolerate. He said, you should be ashamed. You should be grieving. Instead, you're, the word literally is puffed up. You're arrogant. Arrogance is a better translation. You're arrogant like, hey, look at us Christians. We're forgiven pretty much anything we want to do. Jesus loves us. And you think, wow, that's crazy. Not as crazy as you would think. Let me give you a, a modern example. And there are many of them. This one just happened to be a big deal in the press recently. So if you're familiar with the show Bachelorette, shame on you if you are. I'm just kidding, just kidding. But basically, here's the deal. You got a bunch of guys. I mean, it's just guaranteed to be a good marriage, by the way. This is how you should pick a mate. And so you got a bunch of guys on a TV show, want to marry this girl. And so she, you know, interviews them all. It's reality TV. It's really great. Like, oh, he's so charming. He's so kind. I hope you pick him. Well, so part of this involves, most of the time, so the bachelorette sleeps with these guys. Well, one of the guys, one of the bachelors said, hey, you're a Christian, how can you be sleeping with these guys? Now, the press was covering it because he was pretty hypocritical about this, right? But I'm gonna wanna use it to make this point. Her answer was this. Yes, I've had sex with all these guys, but Jesus loves me so my point to you is i'm not so much trying to pick on that although our culture picked on it for a different reason that's exactly exactly what the corinthians were saying exactly they're saying oh yeah he's got his stepmother and living with her but jesus loves us and we're forgiven and i know that sounds a little crazy to you but you just watch you're going to see a lot of that in our culture as well and so that's what they were thinking paul made your heartburn with this He said, you should have been filled with grief. And by the way, this is really intensive language, very emotional language. And you should have kicked this man out. They're like, what? Kick him out? Can we do that? Well, yeah, I grew up in the Church of Christ. You can disfellowship people. You know, this is called church discipline. And it comes from the scripture. We need to talk a little bit about, well, when and why and how and what, what would you do this for? But what I want, the point I want to make here is they are proud. They think they're really good Christians because they're so loving and they're so tolerant. And Paul says, you have totally missed the point. The first problem here is the sin that's happening. And the second problem is that you are okay with it. Let me give you a couple of other uh, passages. I just want to go to uh, Jesus talking to his disciples. This is really an interesting passage in Luke 17. And there are other passages like it, but this one's really clear. He says, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. In other words, people are going to sin. But woe to the person through whom they come. It would be better for that person to be thrown into the sea with a millstone, massive, massive stone, tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, what he's talking about there is he's not talking about, he's here with children, but what he's talking about is, if I get up here and I cause you to sin, Jesus is saying about me, you go teach these people to go do stuff that's sinful. He said, sin is gonna happen, but woe to the person through whom they come. That's why James chapter three, verse one says, not many of you should be teachers for you'll be judged by a stricter judgment. And that's a scary thing. That's one of two verses that I think about every time I teach. Not because I'm anything special, but because if you're gonna handle the word of God, you need to let the word of God speak. Because you get a teacher somebody that tells you something that's sinful, Jesus said, that sin is on you, but woe to the person through whom it comes. And so what Paul is saying is echoing this. He said, yeah, there's sin happening, but look what you're doing. You're bragging about it. You're arrogant about this sin. Jesus gets even more pointed and very angry. This is an angry passage. This is Jesus being very righteously angry. He's writing to the church in Thyatira. We studied this recently in the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. This is Jesus speaking to the church in a town named Thyatira. He says, I know your deeds, verse 19 here, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and you are doing good things. You are living out the Christian life, but I have this against you. You tolerate, remember that's what the Corinthians were bragging about is we're Christians. We, we're tolerant. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. In other words, the Corinthians are just watching this sin go and everybody else, particularly the new believers, would go, I guess that's okay, right? He says, this woman Jezebel, you tolerate that she's teaching and leading them into sexual immorality and idolatry. So what do you think about that, Jesus? He said, I've given her time to repent, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each according to their deeds. This is, not a, this is not something that Jesus takes lightly. I guess that's what I want to say. And so Paul, even though this sounds really intense, obviously, this wording, this is not just Paul. This is very much consistent with the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament, is that sin is dangerous. Now, one of the things that we have trouble with is we think, yeah, but that's awfully harsh. And is that really loving? And I want us to stop for a second and step back because we're, we're all guilty. Our culture is very guilty of this, but we sometimes use a double standard. Let me, give you, let me give you an example. So for those of you that have children, I want you to think about when your kids were little and they would play with certain other kids And those kids were, let's just say, they were a really bad influence on your kids. Maybe they fought all the time, or maybe uh, you know they would get your kids in trouble. Or in other words, you you have all experienced this. You're like, you know, I just I don't think we need to play with those kids anymore. Those kids are not a very good influence on you. Well, you'd say, well, that's good parenting. I mean, okay, I mean you raise your kids the way you want to, but you're, these are not good influence on my kids. When they get to be teenagers, you're intensely interested in this, right? You want them to be in a good peer group, or they're in college, and you want them to be in a good peer group because you realize how influential friends can be and harm your child. I mean, I I make this sound like it's not a big deal, but probably you've hit your knees more when your kids were in high school and college than any time in your life because you know that there are people out there who could influence them in disastrous ways. I mean, they're old enough now to make life-ending mistakes, right? you don't have any problem with saying, I don't want you associating with those people. That's normal. In fact, you'd say that's good parenting. And you're right. That is good parenting. So we need to be careful about making two two standards here. Let me give you another one. And this is more how God sees it. This is more the way God sees it. So, and this is this has happened. This is not a hypothetical. So your kid is in high school and there's kid in the school who's really pretty cool. Everybody thinks he's cool, but he's also supplementing his income by selling drugs. This is happening in every high school in this city, every single one. There's somebody in there except Crossings Christian School, but there's a kid there who's maybe selling that. You find out about that kid, what's your attitude about that? Expel this kid from the school. Get this kid out of here. This kid is a danger to everybody else. My kid could get hooked on opioids. My kid could go astray. Get this kid out of the school. You wouldn't hesitate. In fact, I would argue you would not be a very good parent if you were okay with your kid being in that situation. In other words, you have a duty to protect your children. That's how God looks at his children. And what I mean when I say his children, I mean believers, the Corinthian Christians, those who have committed their life to Christ are children of God. And God is not okay with somebody selling cocaine to his children. You would get angry about that and so does God. And I want, I want us to stop and frame this right because that's why this is so harsh, is God is not okay at all with anybody leading his children astray, particularly when the stakes are so high. You and I know that there are kids who have died from situations I just described. God says these children can die forever if you lead them into sin and destruction. God has righteous wrath. God is angry at sin. And Jesus said, and woe to those who, through whom the sin comes because God is furious at anyone that would corrupt his children. Does that make sense? that's why this passage reads the way it does. That's why you shouldn't be shocked at this at all. In fact, God wouldn't be a very good God if he was okay with that. And you and I wouldn't be very good parents if we were okay with our kids and say, sure, go hang out with the drug dealers. They're fine. Just don't go do that stuff. But yeah, go hang out with them. You'll be fine. Terrible parenting. And God feels the same way about it. So that's Paul addressing the problem two problems. Number one, you have sin, and number two, you seem to be okay with that. Well, let's go on and look at the next. As he goes on, he says this, listen, your boasting isn't good. This tolerance thing of yours is not good. And now he's going to tell you why this is a big deal. He says this, do you not know? Whenever you hear this in the scripture, whenever you read, do you not know? That's kind of the polite way of saying, you idiots. How can you not realize that a little leaven works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old leaven that you may be a new batch of dough without any leaven in it, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with bread without leaven in it, the bread of sincerity and truth. Well, that seems a little cryptic at the beginning, but here's the history. Here's the context of that. This is a brilliant example of talking about something in a way that will really get God's message through. So here's the history. What does he mean when he talks about the Passover lamb and the festival? So in the Old Testament, and I'll just go through this a little bit. If you haven't read this, that's fine. I hope I'll tell you enough to get the story. If you have, you're gonna click and go, oh yeah, I see exactly what he's talking about. But for, from 1400 BC, when the Jews came out of Egypt, Moses, Charlton Heston led them out of Egypt to the promised land, they go to Mount Sinai, the 10 commandments, the Torah, the law of Moses. So from f- about 1400 BC till the time of Jesus, they've been living under this command. Well, one of the things that happened then was they celebrated that coming out of Egypt It was called the Passover. And what they did was the Israelites living in Egypt sacrificed a lamb, painted the doorpost with the blood, and when God came through, he killed the firstborn of every household in Egypt. But he passed over the houses that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And the symbolism on that and the story is magnificent, but let me stay focused on just this context. And so the Passover lamb is sacrificed so that you do not get the judgment of God. And so Jesus becomes our Passover lamb. He was sacrificed for our sins. He took the punishment that we should have had. So when it says Christ is our Passover lamb, he means you've been made new. Your guilt, your sin is gone because he bore that for you. He's our Passover lamb. Well, in that day though, They didn't just kill the lamb, paint the doorpost, and sure enough, the first time they did it, then they left Egypt. They also instituted a feast or a festival. So you would have the day of Passover when you would, the lamb, and you would eat the roast lamb. But for seven days afterwards, you had the feast or festival, That's the way it's translated here, of unleavened bread. Now, the reason for it was God said, you're gonna leave Egypt in haste. And they're like, really? Egypt is powerful. And they go, no you're going to leave. In fact, you're going to leave so fast. Pharaoh's going to change his mind like that. He says, and you're going to leave so quickly. You don't have time to let the bread rise. You're going to eat unleavened bread. You're going to eat crackers, right? So they did. And he said, in fact, I want you to remember this. And for seven days, I want you to get rid of all the yeast, all the leaven that you have in your house and observant Jews through all that time. And still today, uh, Orthodox Jews remove yeast from their house, and for seven days, they're gonna eat unleavened bread, bread made without yeast. Let me tell you something that, that also kind of plays into this a little bit, because the word here is leaven, not yeast. And I know that's kind of interchangeable, but not exactly. So if you've ever made bread, uh, and my wife makes great bread, and homemade bread, and what you would do is you'd have the, the dough, And you would take a little bit out of the dough and then you'd make the bread. And that little bit of dough is your starter, right? It's leavened. And so then when you put the flour and the water together for the next batch, you would take that little bit of leaven, little bit of dough and put it in there. That's what they did in ancient times. Still what you do today. And so you would mix it up and sure enough, the leaven or the yeast would go all through the whole batch of dough. And right before you baked it, They would take a little piece out for the next batch, put it in, bake it, right? You get starter, leaven. In other words, it's what's gonna be the yeast for the next batch. Well, they did that every week. In ancient times, you couldn't just go to the grocery store and buy some yeast, right? You kept that. But over time, remember now, no refrigerators, right? So over time, though, that leaven would get contaminated and you basically would end up with bad bread. It would get contaminated over time. That's why the idea of leaven in the Bible so often refers to the idea of contamination because that's the way they lived their life. But once a year, what did the Jews do? They started over. That's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread was, throw away the old bread starter. We're gonna start anew, we're gonna start fresh. So there's this symbolism that ties to something that they do every day. Everybody there just kept some leaven. And sure enough, every now and then it would get contaminated from the climate, et cetera. And so you get this idea that if you take some leaven that's contaminated and put it in your batch of dough, what happened? The whole batch of dough is bad. That's what he's saying. Get rid of the old leaven. He said, do you not know that even a little bit of leaven works through the whole batch of dough? what's he talking about? Well, he's talking here about sin. If you tolerate this sin in the church, he's talking about now the believers, he said, do you not realize it doesn't take very much leaven to go through the whole loaf? And so this idea of contamination, he said, this sin is contaminating the whole church. This is the why. And it's kind of important if we are to think about ever doing something like this in our churches, we need to remember what is the reason. Is that the only person that sinned in that church? No, it's not the only person that sinned in that church. The same thing is supposed to happen to everybody that sins in that church in the sense that they're all called to repentance. In this case, repentance isn't happening. In fact, the church is kind of celebrating their freedom and tolerance of this. And he said, do you not realize that if you keep this up, that's going to go through the whole church and the whole church will now be contaminated will be bad. So he's explaining the rationale behind why you should not be arrogant about this. That's sin. Sin is dangerous. Jesus had very strong views about sin and its power to destroy you. God loves his children. He doesn't want sin anywhere near you. He knows it will destroy you. And so he's saying, don't let it hang around. He's saying, don't take that contamination and put it inside you. Don't let that contamination stay in the body of believers because all it takes is a little leaven. And the next thing you know, it's through the whole batch of dough. Does that make sense? Paul's explaining, he starts really strong, but he said, this is how I want you to think about it. This is how God thinks about this, is this idea of leaven. A couple of good lessons there. One is The influence. Sexuality happens to be a very visible influence. You're gonna see in a minute, uh, he's gonna talk about it's not just sexual immorality that can do this. He's gonna list off several things that are, that are sinful, that are obvious, that can be contaminants in the church. But sexual immorality then and now is probably the most visible to outsiders, to people that aren't in the church. I'll tell you what comes second, a close second. In my opinion, is idolatry. When people outside the congregation there in Corinth, they're looking at it and they go, that guy's living with his stepmother. That's like, we even think that's bad. What kind of people are these, right? It's visible. It's not the only sin that was happening, but it was very visible and it was clearly gonna infect them. Another would be idolatry. If you see all these Christians going to the pagan temples and worshiping and bowing down before the emperor and bowing down before Artemis, they'd go, oh, that's kind of crazy. I thought they believed in a different God. Same is true today. When Christians today are engaged in sexual immorality, Christians today are engaged in idolatry, like greed and other forms of idolatry, very visible to outside the church. So I want you to think about the parallels here because what's happening here is a very biblical principle and idea. And while that particular sin may not be the worst our culture knows, the principle is exactly the same. I want to talk about one more lesson, but let me pause for question first because this next lesson is going to lead right into what he's going to say next. And I want you to see that Paul is taking a very strong position, but he's going to tell you why he's taking such a strong position. So question. Yes. In the first example, how do you know and how would we know reading it that it is not talking about incest? How do we know it's not talking about incest? I guess you couldn't be 100% sure, but there are different words for incest. There are different commands in the Old Testament about incest. And the fact that he doesn't specifically say that would indicate that it probably isn't that. Does that make sense? In other words, there's another word for incest. He didn't use the word that said incest. He said you're with your father's wife well, why wouldn't you say incest if that were your mother? Also, uh, there are other passages in the Old Testament that talk about that as well. It just seems extremely unlikely because of the way it's worded. In verse 5, it talks about handing the man over to Satan so his spirit could be saved later. What does that mean? Great question. Um, What does it mean to hand him over to Satan? This is not the only time that appears in the New Testament, by the way. That's not the, first time, that's not the only time you'll see that phrase as you read your New Testament. Here's the way the New Testament, and I'm talking about Jesus, and I'm talking about all the disciples. Jesus talks about Satan. By the way, Satan is a title, the accuser, uh, and the deceiver. In other words, he says Satan is the ruler of this world, not this church, not this body of believers. That's the kingdom of God. God rules here, which, by the way, is part of Paul's problem. It's like, that's not what it looks like when God is ruling. You don't go marry your father's wife, right? But he talks about the world out there being the domain of Satan. The Bible talks about everybody, including us, this is who we used to be, we have been enslaved to Satan. We have sold our souls, if you will. Sin has become our master. The Bible talks about it in a lot of ways. So the Satan, in other words, we're going to say you are not in the body of Christ. You are not in God's family. You are not part of the church. I'm saying the same thing several different ways here because when God thinks about being in his family, that's what we call being a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, Let me be more specific. In our culture, a follower of Jesus Christ, one who has denied himself, taken up his cross, follow Christ. He said, you're not part of that anymore. You now, if you're not part of the kingdom of God, guess where you are? You're in the domain of Satan. And he says, I want you to go live in the domain of Satan until you are ready to repent, because it's hell out there. Literally. That is the domain of Satan. That is your life. If you pick up the newspaper every day and you read what this world looks like and you say, oh, that's heaven. No, that's not what you say. You go, that's what it looks like when Satan is running the world. So they put him out there. Why? So that he can be saved on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is talking about judgment day. Old Testament, New Testament, the day of the Lord is the day of accounting. That's the day after we die, uh, for some of us while we're still alive, but at the end of time, God will judge everyone. Revelation 20, he says, and this throne was set up and everyone would be judged according to their deeds. The point is he's saying, look, this guy, living in sin, this guy's life is not nearly as important as eternity. And so we're going to do the loving thing. The whole point of putting this guy out of the church is so he will repent. Now that sounds like a churchy word. It wasn't in those days. Repent means so that he will change his mind. He will turn around. He will come back. And so the whole point is twofold. You can't be in this family and corrupt the other children but we love you. And we love you enough to say, you're going to have to live outside and please turn around, repent, and come back. So turning him over to Satan means you're not part of God's body anymore. You belong in this world. It's like the story of the prodigal son. I mean, literally the prodigal son is this story. That's why the prodigal son story is there. So you get the prodigal son. He's a member of the family. He's got half of everything his father owns. But what does he do? He sins against his father. He says, give me my stuff now. I'm leaving. I care nothing about you. I'm a rebel. He's rebelling, isn't he? That's what this guy doing the sexually immoral things is doing. He's rebelling. When we sin, we rebel against God. We say, not going to do what you want, going to do what I want. You're not God. I'm God. So prodigal son goes away. He's turned over to Satan. He's living in the world. Does he like it? Oh, yeah, until the money runs out. And then, next thing you know, he's eating pig food. And he, quote, comes to his senses, right? He's in a faraway land, Jesus telling the story. He comes to his senses, and he goes, what in the world am I doing? I'm going back to my father. What happened? He literally, physically turned around and went back. That's what that story's about, repentance, repentance. I changed my mind. I have sinned. And what does he say to his father? Father, I have sinned against you. And his father says, I forgive you. Repent. That's why they're turning him over to Satan. And that's what that means. Thank you for asking that question. That's a good point. Uh, Do you think Paul would feel the same way about the divorce rate in the church today? That's a good question, and I wanna hold that for two lessons, because we're, he's gonna to talk to them about marriage and divorce. So good question, I'm not trying to dodge it. It'll, when we talk about that in the framework of chapter seven, it'll fit very nicely. So thank you, but if you can be patient, when we get to chapter seven, he's gonna talk about, how do Christians do this divorce and, and marriage thing because it's different than the way the culture does it? So let me hold on that, that's a good question, okay? Okay, so the second lesson out of this passage we're looking at, this idea of yeast, is you've got contamination and you want to keep contamination away from the rest of the dough. Well, duh, if you're making bread and you realize this is not good, I'm gonna throw it away. I'm sure not gonna put it in the dough, right? You want a boundary. It's the 21st century term. You know what the Old Testament term is? Holiness. That's what holiness is. Holiness is being set apart. And there's a boundary between things that are clean, things that are unclean. The Old Testament scholars know that, oh my goodness, the Old Testament talked a lot about clean and unclean. That's exactly right. This is exactly what it's talking about, is you have the people of God. They are holy. They're clean. They have been saved the blood of Christ has washed you clean. There's a reason the Bible talks about all the, you you seeing these things fit? If not, I'm doing a really bad job. Everything you know about the Bible should be clicking right now. Like, oh my gosh, that's why the Bible talks about it that way. Exactly. You have been washed clean. You are now holy. You know what the word saints means? We think, well, it means Christians. Yes, it does. And literally it means the holy ones. The ones who've been washed clean. We've got a good lump of dough here. We are definitely not putting any... And he contaminated leaven in there, right? We're not putting, oh, good heavens, get that stuff away from here. The whole point is believers in Christ, the family of God, the church, those things should all be synonymous. They aren't always, but they are in the Bible. Those things are synonymous. That's a holy group of people. There's a boundary. And he's saying sexual immorality is one of the things that's on that side of the boundary. He's also going to tell you here in a second, there are other things on that side of the boundary. That's what the New Testament's telling you about. What does it look like to live in God's family? Well, part of that is what do we do in this family? What do we not do in this family? What's holy? What's not holy? What's moral? What's immoral? That's the way this is being framed. Christians, the church is holy. That's what Jesus meant. I just want to connect if I'm Hopefully I'm not going too fast, but I want you to connect. Remember when Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Don't cover it up. You are the salt of the earth. When the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? You throw it away and trample it. What's he saying? He said, you are holy. You are people who follow Christ. If you lose your saltiness, if you become contaminated, you look like the rest of the world, what good are you? You're just gonna be thrown away. That's what he meant about the salt losing its saltiness. In other words, you're supposed to be influencing the culture. You start looking like them, you're no good to me. You're no different than they are. That's what's going on in Corinth. He says, you let this go on, the salt will lose its saltiness. The contamination will spread through the whole church. So there's boundary issues. Let's finish the chapter. I have written to you in my letter he obviously i think wrote a letter before this he's writing them a lot of letters i mean think about he's probably emailing them every day i hear you guys are really goofing this up i wrote in you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people i did not mean the people of this world who are immoral or greedy, or swindlers. And here's where I want to expand this a little bit. He's, he, sexual immorality is an example of what he's talking about. It's not the only thing. You've got sexual immorality, greedy, swindlers, idolaters. If you were going to avoid those people, you'd have to leave the world because sinners are going to sin. The world is going to be worldly. He said, I didn't mean not to associate with the people outside the family because they're sinners. He says, i'm writing you you must not associate and that word is really interesting it literally means mix together with remember our idea about the leaven you put it in the lump of dough what do you do you knead the dough you mix it all together he said don't do that he said i do not want you to mix together with anyone who calls himself a brother in other words a follower of jesus christ but is sexually immoral or greedy idolater, slanderer, drunkard, swindler with such a person, don't even eat with them. And then he goes on, he said, what business is mine to judge those outside the church? Yeah, they're sinning. They're not in the body of Christ. God will judge those outside. You go teach them the truth. You don't have to judge them. You just go tell them the truth. But this guy, expel the wicked man from among you. So does this make sense? What he's saying is, and you get the rationale here. I want you to think about this a little bit. He said, there's a boundary. There's clean and unclean. There's holy and not holy. There's the family of God, and there is the domain of Satan. There is the church, and there is the world. We use a lot of words, but I want you to know that the Bible sees those words in these terms. In other words, God says, this is my family. These are my children. They've placed their trust in my son, Jesus Christ, who died to set them free, and they are free indeed and there are people out there that I desperately want to repent. Children, please go tell them about this good news that if only they will turn to Jesus Christ, they too can be saved. They too can join this family. I'm not sending you out there to judge them, hit them over the head, tell them what evil things they're doing. Call sin, sin, but I'm really sending you out there to tell them there's hope. If you are willing to turn around, God is willing to To hug you and take you and forgive you. So that's what I want you to do. Paul says, now in the family, different deal. If you're in the family, we're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to encourage each other. We're going to love each other like crazy. We're going to love each other so much. We will not be okay with sin destroying my brother, my sister. I'm not okay with the drug dealer getting my kid hooked on drugs. Does that make sense? You see the boundary issue? The way we deal with each other is like family. It's intense love, but it's love that actually loves you enough to not let you be destroyed. That's what they're doing with this guy. They said, put him out. He has to be out of the body. Why does he have to be out of the body? Because he's gonna contaminate the rest of the body. He's gotta be out. But what's the purpose? So that he will repent and come back that's what's going on here. You see, I want you to see the motive is love. It's real love. It's not sentimentalism. It's not enabling people. He's saying, no, you need to love this guy enough to not be okay with this. Now, the people outside, go tell them the truth. There's no sense hitting them over the head with their sin. They're sinners. Their only hope is to hear the good news and that God loves you enough to make a way. Would you not come with me? Would you not turn back? That's what we do. We call it evangelism. We're just telling that good news. That's what's going on here. This idea of expelling the evil man from among you is sounds really harsh to us and we don't do this very much. And to the extent that we don't, let me put it this way. If you didn't ask this, you should ask this. Like, why are we not kicking someone out here tonight? I was only joking about that, okay? But in all seriousness, why don't we do this? To the extent that we don't love people enough to do this, that's a big problem. To the extent that we are okay with one of our brothers or sisters getting hooked on sin, getting addicted to sin, I want you to think about it in terms that we understand, and that is addiction is like one of the worst things you and I can think about because it destroys people. Well, sin is worse than addiction, but let me just use that language. In other words, you're not okay with your brother or sister getting addicted. You'd do pretty much whatever it took to to bring them back you do pretty much whatever it took you do the tough love if you needed to you do what you took to keep them away from that you do what it took to bring them back to the extent that we don't love each other enough to do that we're wrong as far as kicking people out the way the church has done that has been ridiculous hasn't been done this way hasn't been done for the right reasons but i'll just say this we need to love each other enough to do what it takes to keep each other from being addicted to sin because God loves us that much. And he expects us to take care of our brothers and sisters. And he also expects us to take the good news to people who aren't in this family yet. That's what 1 Corinthians 5 is really about. I don't think we do a good job of this in the church. And I think we're a little afraid of it. And I understand that. We're afraid of people in the church not being very uh, Christ-like and using it as a way to, oh, I saw you sin, you're out, you're out, you're out you know, you start excommunicating people right and left. It's like, no, whoa, we're totally missing the point. There's nothing loving about that. But on the other extreme, and that's why I don't think we do much, and I understand that. But on the other extreme, we need to love each other enough to confront each other. We need to love each other enough to care enough to say, I'll do whatever it takes that I can do to keep you from becoming addicted to sin. Make sense? That's what First Corinthians 5 is about. Let me tell you how this story ends. I'm going to jump to 2 Corinthians. This is two Corinthians. This is the next letter because he wrote two of them. That's why it's 1 Corinthians, second Corinthians that we have. He probably wrote a lot of letters, several emails, left several voicemails, I suspect. But basically we have two letters. Here's what he wrote in the second letter. I believe, let me just leave all the exegesis out of this for a minute. It's my opinion. This is talking about that guy. Way too coincidental if it's not. So think about this. So they take his advice and they go, whoa, whoa, we were really totally wrong. We do not, did not understand this right. Dude, you, are, you, are you willing to repent? I mean, come back, stop doing this. You take it that he said no, and it's like, I'm sorry, you, you're not part of the family anymore. And look what happens. I wrote as I did, meaning I wrote to you so strongly last time that when I came, because he's going planning to come back and visit him, I wouldn't be distressed. In other words, don't make me show up and deal with this myself. In other words, he said, I wrote to you very strongly last time. He said, I had confidence in you that you would share my joy. I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. This is the right attitude. I wasn't mad at this guy. I wasn't gonna let him stay in the family and corrupt my kids. I was anguished and I wrote to you with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. I loved you enough to tell you the hard things you needed to hear. If anyone has caused grief, meaning this guy, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you. Verse six, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is enough for him. Now instead, in other words, what I read in that is he has repented and he's saying, what do you do now? He says, now you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. This is the biblical model. You're gonna see this all through the Bible. This isn't the only place you'll see this idea. Uh, Galatians 6.1, if any of you is caught in sin, I don't mean caught as in I saw you sinning, I mean you're getting caught up in sin. Restore them gently, in other words, go to them care about them, love them, bring them back. This guy, I, this is my view, I believe this guy was kicked out and he goes, whoa, I'm not in the family. I'm not part of the family of God anymore. And it grieved him and he repented and he came back and said, I'm sorry. I, I want." He's the prodigal son. And Paul says, let me tell you what you do now. You reaffirm your love for him and you forgive him and you bring him back in. It is the story of the prodigal son. Does that make sense? Kind of nice to see that ending. It doesn't always happen that way, but I think it's really cool to see in this letter that this thing that he knew was going to be hard for them to do, they did, and God was faithful, and this man repented and came back. So, that's the story of kicking people out of church. It's not exactly like Survivor, it's not exactly like you get voted off, it's motivated by love. Do you have to do this by kicking somebody out of church? No. In fact, there ought to be an awful lot of us caring for each other that has nothing to do with, I'm sorry, this is so contaminating, you can't be part of the body. We should be doing this for each other all the time. In fact, Augustine said the Christian life is a life of repentance. And that's true because we all sin. We're not committed to sin. We're no longer guilty of sin. If we confess our sins, if we repent, he will forgive us. And so we are constantly turning back to God and we are constantly helping each other turn back to God. That's what the body of Christ looks like. And Paul here is teaching them to live that way. If we live that way, we will really stand out, partly because the world will say, those Christians, they're not okay. With sexual immorality they're not okay with idolatry they're not okay with greed they're not okay with destroying your life through addictions they're not okay with swindling people they are they take this stuff seriously that's exactly right that's the difference between being holy and being of the world that's what sets god's people apart so on a personal level that's what you and i aspire to we want to be holy is that oh i want to behave right no I want to love God enough to say, I'm going to do it your way, and I'm going to start putting off all these old ways, the swindling, the greed, the, the lust, the, all those things, Lord, prune those things out of my life, and we're going to help each other do it. That's what's compelling to the world, to see a family like that and say, I really, really want to be adopted into that family. So that's what you and I do, and that's what 1 Corinthians 5 is about. Seems really harsh but it's really clear and it's really truthful. And if we'll live like that, I think you'll see the world desperately wanting to be part of this family. Make sense? Next time, they're also having trouble inside the church, again, with basically what happens when we disagree. And it turns out we're suing each other and going to court. And so the interesting question is, and Paul has some strong things to say about that, but the interesting question is, can two Christians go to court against each other? That's what we're gonna talk about next week. So don't sue anybody this week till you find the answer. All right, I'll see you next time.